Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. Listen for what God is saying. Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to have children. Since she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from giving birth, so go to my servant. Maybe she will provide me with children. Abram did, just as Sarai said. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when she realized that she was pregnant, she no longer respected her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, This harassment is your fault. I allowed you to embrace my servant, but when she realized she was pregnant, I lost her respect. Let the Lord decide who was right, you or me. Abram said to Sarai, Since she's your servant, do whatever you wish to her. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she ran away from Sarai. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. Well, good morning and welcome to Urban Village Church again. My name is uh, Kate and I am the student pastor here at Hyde Park Woodlawn. Um, often I serve in the role of liturgist, but uh, today for this fun passage, uh, they're letting me preach. <laughs> so uh, would you please all pray with me? <laughs> good and gracious God. Uh, Thank you for the gift that it is to come together in this community, to sing songs, to to worship, and to think um, just even a little bit deeper about what it means to be in relationship with one another as part of your larger family and all of uh, the joy and sorrow and complications that that brings. Open our hearts and our minds today so that um, we might hear what it is you're saying to us. And Lord, today speak in spite of me. Speak with me and through me so that your message um, can be heard and received. In your name we pray. Amen. So throughout this sermon series, we are talking about family and relationships in a series that we're lovingly called We Are Family, and we've been getting to know um, the messy and complicated family of Genesis throughout this series. Last week, we looked at the story of Jacob, Isaac, and Rebekah. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah. And this week, we're returning to that story. We're backing up a couple chapters in Genesis and revisiting a part of the story that is often overlooked. The passage for today, the story of Hagar, Sarai, and Abram, features a strong mother as the central character. And this is a principal text of womanist theology, which is a theology that seeks to elevate the experience of black females and to answer the question, what is God's response to those who experience pain, bondage, and suffering? As a female Egyptian slave, Hagar, the main character of this story, is not only affected by sexism, but also racism and classism. And we see these three things unfold 
and at work as the story unfolds. Where the story of Abraham and Sarai, or Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, uh, as they're called before their name change, um, where this story usually begins is with God's promise to Abram that he will have a really, really big family, and that his wife, Sarai, who is uh, postmenopausal, will have a son. And this seems ridiculous and impossible, but with faith and trust in God, you all know how the story goes. Um, but they've been waiting for 10 years with no baby. Abram and Sarai become impatient and anxious and begin to trust the promise of God. So they take matters into their own hands. Sarai suggests that Abram have a baby with Hagar. And in the near ancient East, um, this was unfortunately a common response to infertility. Commentaries and textbooks might politely describe it as slave surrogacy, but it would be a lie to call this anything other than what it is, which is rape. With no mention or consideration of Hagar, Abram agrees. Hagar becomes pregnant, and in a culture where having children is a sign of status and power, Sarai feels her role in the family shifting. Acting out of jealousy or fear or a sense of entitlement, Sarai, quote, deals harshly with Hagar, or in other words, she abuses Hagar, and for obvious reasons, Hagar runs away. And if you are spinning in the family drama from all of the skeeving and colluding and conniving, I am right there with you. The story of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar seems better like a family drama. It seems like a family drama better fit for an evening broadcast on the CW than it does for a book in the Bible. And this is a messed up story. Like, let's just put our cards on the table. (laughs) It is not the thing that I expect to find in something that we call a sacred text, and certainly not a sacred text that talks about not committing adultery, not being jealous of your neighbor, and treating others as you would like to be treated. If womanist theology asks the question, what is God's response to black women experiencing pain, bondage, and suffering, then where the heck is God in all of this? Hagar is single, pregnant, and now homeless without resources in the wilderness. And this is when God comes to her in the form of an angel or messenger. And for the first time in the story, someone calls Hagar by her name and addresses her directly. And God, or the angel or messenger, asks Hagar a two-part question. They ask, where are you coming from and where are you going? And Hagar only responds to the first of these questions. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, with no mention of what her ongoing plan is. And even though she's surrounded by a dangerous wilderness, getting to somewhere safe is not as important as getting away from something dangerous because this is how our bodies work in a moment of crisis. And God's response to this is is shocking. Verse 11, God says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Not only is this not the response we expect from a compassionate God, but it is also the exact thing that you are not supposed to say to someone who is coming from an abusive relationship. And just to be clear from the start, this passage should not be read as a command from God to return to an abusive relationship. And just a little bit more context about Hagar's situation might help illuminate a different interpretation. Hagar has two bad options. She can keep running. And this would certainly be a more convenient option for Sarai and Abram. It is uncomfortable 
and it would be uncomfortable for them to be reminded of the humanity of someone that they have dehumanized. For those in power, it is easier to separate, segregate, and isolate, if not by law, than by making an environment so unpleasant that it incentivizes leaving. And we see this all the time in the way that our schools are set up, in the way that our cities are designed. Almost exactly a year ago, in June of 2018, people experiencing homelessness in Lower Wacker were pushed off of their encampments and fenced out because they were too visible to tourists and to the public. And so the city's response, like Sarai and Abram's response, was to make it a hostile or impossible place for them to stay. And God prevents, so God presents Hagar with a second option, which is equally as bad. She can do what the Lord instructs and return to Canaan, where Sarai and Abram are. Living and giving birth in the wilderness carries such a strong possibility of death, both for Hagar and for, child, for her child, that this might actually be the safer of the two options, especially when Hagar doesn't have a response to God's second question, where are you going? It might be that this is the Lord's instruction. The Lord's instruction for her to return is a survival tactic in the face of only bad options. And it also might be that the Lord's instruction to return to Sarai and Abram is an urging for Hagar to claim her right to be there. Abram doesn't get to retroactively decide that Hagar and their future son Ishmael aren't a part of his family. It might be more convenient for Sarai and Abram to pretend like Hagar doesn't exist, but God reminds Hagar of her right to refuse to be ignored and to look in the face of her oppressors and force them to look into hers. Weighing her options in the wilderness, Hagar makes the hard and difficult decision to return to exploitation and to claim her place in Canaan and Abram's family. This is the response of people who protest, who participate in sit-ins, pride parades and marches, who go on strike, who boycott, who lobby legislators. These are the people who disrupt the status quo by making it inconvenient to be ignored, pushed aside, or overlooked. Hagar's decision to return to Canaan is not the outcome for every person suffering abuse in their family, and her story shouldn't be used as a blueprint or a command by God. What it is, is it's God's promise to hear the suffering and to see the suffering of those who are afflicted, even when no one else does. And it's it's God's promise to stand with those people, even when no one else does. And what Hagar's story, what protests and pride parades, lobbying sit-ins, marches, strikes, and boycotts, what they show us is that when people choose to live differently within a structure, when they demand to be seen, that over time, these structures begin to shift and to change. Next week, we'll talk about chosen families, which are important and necessary, especially for people who, for whatever reason, do not feel supported in their birth families. But people who often have the strongest chosen families um, know best that as much as we might not want to, we are inextricably bound and tied up with our families of origin, be it through DNA, through legal structures, through emotional attachments. I'll leave room for a collective sigh. (laughs) It's just logistically so much more difficult to cut off 
or to run away from families than it is from other relationships. And because of this, it can be one of the best places where we see this type of systemic change when one person refuses to be overlooked. I was listening to a podcast a few months ago um, that gives a pretty, a pretty common example of this type of shift in the community, in a family. Um, the podcast is called Unerased, and it was created alongside the, the movie Boy Erased, which was released in theaters a few months ago. And it explores the, uh, the hidden world of conversion therapy in the United States. And this particular episode uh, tells the story of Liz Dyer, who was a conservative evangelical Christian when her son came out as gay. I was um, a conservative evangelical Christian woman who believed that anyone who was homosexual could only be whole and healthy if they either became heterosexual or lived a life of celibacy. I also feared that my son was gay. And so eventually she just asks him, are you? And I remember he had said to me, um, if I was gay, it would really upset you, wouldn't it? So he was measuring. He was measuring, yes. And that fall, she asks again. And he tells her outright, yes, Mom, I'm gay. How did it strike you? I was angry. I felt like at the initial um, feeling is, oh my gosh, I mean, we've all been living a lie. I don't know my son. I don't know who he is. He's hidden this from me. How have I failed? You know, how has my husband failed? How has our family failed? I mean, just so many, many, many emotions. Um, After her son came out, Liz, for the first time, looked at the passages in Bible, the, the Bible that she'd pinned her beliefs on. There really was not sufficient evidence in scripture to condemn same-sex relationship. Liz says as soon as she realized that, something in her began to shift. Okay, well, it's not black and white. And I know my kid, right? That's a powerful combination. It's not black and white, and I know my kid. That's powerful. While this isn't the response to every person who comes out this type of story isn't uncommon. A friend or relative comes out as LGBTQIA and deeply held beliefs shift. One person chooses to live defiantly in a system and those around them adapt and change. So where are you in your systems? Who are you choosing to see and who are you missing? How are you letting yourself be seen? And where might you be hiding, building courage, or needed to be reminding that, reminded that God is standing with you. In Liz Dyer's case, her son's coming out had ripple effects far beyond her family. She now coordinates a group of nearly 5,000 mothers, mostly conservative evangelical Christians, whose children have come out as LGBTQIA. They affectionately call themselves the Mama Bears, <clears throat> and their secret Facebook group serves as a support system for other mothers whose worldviews are uncomfortably shifting after their kids have come out. The mama bears speak publicly against homophobia, specifically ill-informed, biblically-based homophobia, which is how I came across this clip. 
They protest anti-LGBTQ state legislation, give, up, give what they call free mom hugs in public, and will even stand in as a mom for an LGBTQIA couple whose parents refuse to attend their weddings. And all of this because Nick, Liz's son, decided to be visible. So sometimes these shifts aren't so dramatic. It's a lot slower, and it's often a lot smaller. And it often feels like we take three steps back before we ever take a step forward. Even in the story of Hagar, God's promise of liberation is for the next generation. And in a sense, Hagar's story illuminates a reality still persisting today. Even when situations and families fail, how many parents make huge sacrifices for the sake of a better life for their children and their children's children? After God tells Hagar to return to Sarai, God says two more things. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will go greatly, multiply your offspring so that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and you shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael. He shall be a wild ass of a man. Remembering that this is a system where having many children is associated with wealth and power, God's promise to multiply Hagar's offspring is also a promise of power and status. And while it doesn't sound like a compliment, calling her son Ishmael a wild ass of a man is the same as calling him free, as saying he is being freed. With the help of history, we know that God's promise to Hagar persists and that Ishmael becomes an important prophet and patriarch in the religion of Islam. And Hagar becomes a powerful actor in the history of not one, not two, but three major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But Hagar, in that moment, doesn't know that this is her future or her legacy. So the, for the question for Hagar then, and the question still today is, how does one develop a positive and productive quality of life in a situation where resources for doing so are not visible. God's promise to Hagar and God's promise to us is to give tools to live more confidently into healthier ways of being. God provides courage to self-examine, protection, determination, and self-confidence. If we believe and trust in, we believe and we trust in a God who stands and journeys with those who are made invisible. We believe and trust in a God who sees and hears and knows and restores the dignity of individuals when it has been stripped away. And we believe and trust in a God who partners with us across generations in the work of changing the world towards the kingdom come. Will you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we are always visible to you known and loved by you. We thank you for the tools that you give us, first to survive, then to be productive and healthy, and then for the courage to live more fully into who it is that we are. Lord, instill us with confidence as we trust in your promise to walk with us on all roads of life and, and all the places that we travel. Give us confidence to trust in your promise to be partners with us as we create a kingdom where we all are seen for who we are. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.